Hello and welcome everyone to another episode of Africa's a Country Talk. If you don't know who I am, I'm Will Shorky, streaming live from Johannesburg, South Africa, joined as always by my lovely co-host Sean Jacobs, who's in Brooklyn, New York. And what you're watching is Africa's a Country's weekly talk and interview show, which broadcasts every single Tuesday at 7 p.m. African time, 6 p.m. if you are in London, I think, or 5 p.m. I'm not really sure about other time zones. Um, but our show is always produced by Anthony Engel, who's in Cape Town, South Africa, and this is episode 37. So that was, that was Will with the Kevin Durant intro. <laughs> it's like, do you know who I am? As yeah. he, he dunks on you, like, he's like, and uh, you know who I am, Will Sookie. So anyway, guys, I'm Sean Jacobs. Um, I, 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 I have a story for another day when somebody introduced themselves to me, somebody famous, and he sort of said, um, you know, I'm X. And I said, yeah, and I'm Sean Jacobs. Um, Would uh, actually go around with the person introducing themselves to what is The what is this? Was it Kevin Durant who was the famous? No, it wasn't Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant actually, I actually saw Kevin Durant one day. I've seen Kevin Durant play basketball, like in, you know, in person at the for the Nets, um, and also when he used to play for the. No, no, actually, I haven't seen him for the Nets. I've seen him play for the Golden State Warriors, um, uh, destroying the the then really bad Brooklyn Nets. Um, but I was just going to say he came one time, and Ben Fogel was with me. He can confirm this. <laughs> I came to Brooklyn to support some local basketball league, and he said nothing. He just sat in a corner. I mean, he's like the star of the show, but he yeah. just sits there like not like people are waiting for him to make some speech. I don't know, up from whatever, you know, up from the like, you know, the AAU, which is the amateur association kind of basketball, youth basketball. They probably were waiting for him to tell kids, like, how do you become Kevin Durant? And he yeah. just like sat, sat there, just back in the bus, and he left. And he had a lot more to say to Michael Rappaport. But anyway, um, <laughs> let's let's get to more like uh, serious matters. So it just happens that tomorrow, uh, May fifth, is uh, Karl Marx's birthday. Some people often confuse me for Karl Marx because I have a, a long, <laughs> although I'm not that, although I'm not as smart as Karl Marx. Um, so we thought it would be fitting today to ask whether Karl Marx's ideas are still relevant, uh, especially to Africans and the African diaspora. Our guests later on the program are Annie Olulaku, Olaloku, I gotta get that right, Olaloku uh, Teriba and Zayad Al-Nabolsi. Annie is an independent researcher based in London, working on the legacies of empire and the complex histories of race. And Ziad is a PhD student in Africana studies at Cornell University, working on African philosophy of culture. And this is a good one, African Marxism. So he'll have something to say for real. And the philosophy of science and modern African intellectual history. But that's for later, yeah, in the program. And a reminder, as always, if you missed our program last week, it was a great one. I mean, I, I don't want to brag, but you know, most of them turned out to be pretty great. And uh, we, we celebrated the independence of Sierra Leone and South Africa, which was on April 27th. Sierra Leone celebrated Independence Day, South Africa Freedom Day. And on the show, we accept, we assessed the road travel since independence. Sierra Leone won it to 1960, South Africa 1994. And we were joined by the filmmaker Seun Babalola and the writer Ishmael Bia, 
as well as Sisonke Samang. So clips for that episode are available on our YouTube channel. Uh, but as usual, check out the whole thing on our Patreon, along with all of the episodes from our archive. And I can definitely say that uh, both, both our, all, all, all the guests were, were excellent. Um, but I will give at least, I want to give a shout out to when Sasanke talked about the, the uh, fire and archives, which I think is a really uh, nice little bit that I can recommend that people rewatch. I mean, the, the whole program was, was incredible. Ismail talking about uh, the question of language in Sierra Leone, um, Seyun talking about what Africa, you know, how, what, what does freedom mean to women, uh, women's, women's, um, Liberation. We've done a similar program before. Always gets uh, postponed, and I think that's that's another theme that ran through that program. So remember to hit the like button below um, and subscribe on our YouTube channel, as well as follow us on Facebook. I'm sort of saying the same thing Will has said, but we have to say it over and over again to get people to to do it. We're also on Instagram and on Twitter. Um, and I would just say, go go check out all our work in general. But before we invite our guests, before before we invite our guests, um, uh, let's talk about just the kind of stuff that we've been looking at in the last uh, week or so. Just things that we, you know, because, hey, we do read. Um, and I know people think I only watch football, but I do read. I, do, I care about a lot of other stuff. In fact, earlier today, Will and I was having a WhatsApp back and forth about uh, Mbembez on the post colony. It was, it was actually, it was, I actually enjoyed that. Um, so anyway, I actually wanted to, the thing I wanted to sort of shout out or just kind of mention um, to start the program is book criticism. I actually feel that uh, what I've enjoyed, I always enjoy book criticism because there's no way that I can read all the new books um, that are coming out. Um, and often, you know, if, you, if, if, if reviews are good, then it's, it's always great to follow it. And I, I mean, we have our own book review se uh, section, although we're trying to figure out how to do it differently. We just appointed a, a book review editor, um, Anakwa Romena, I hope he's listening. So watch out for how we're gonna cover books um, differently, the book industry. Um, and we're hoping to have him come on the program actually uh, regularly in the future, but watch out for that. But I wanna quickly shout out the, the two books that I, the, the, there's a book, the, 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 the reviews that I've liked recently, one is, is both on this new book about Edward Said, so there's a new book, um, it's a biography written by Timothy Brennan, who's a former student of Said. It's called Places of Mind, A Life of Edward Said. And it's, it's uh, I ordered a copy of this book because I've been, <laughs> the reviews have kind of inspired me to buy copies. But just think quickly, it's, it's, it's about Said, who uh, in a way was just an incredible, uh, versatile person, I mean, in summary, you know, a literary theorist, a uh, pianist, um, a, a music critic, and I think uh, uh, Pankas Mishra, uh, which is one of these reviewers, sort of refers to him as New York's most famous public, famous public, public, intellectual, public intellectual, Susan Sontag. I think it's, he's probably equal to them uh, in, in being from New York. And then he describes him also as America's most prominent advocate for Palestinian rights. So there are two reviews that I want to single out and I can recommend. Actually, there was a there was a review that appeared in the Wall Street Journal that was that was really, I mean, I, the less I say about it, the better. Uh, it it was just another attempt to kind of go after Saeed's legacy and, and the smart team 
uh, and I don't think it succeeded, but it's the kind of thing that's very common when people write about Edward Said misrepresenting uh, his work um, for Palestinian liberation, the sort of um, you know trite uh, uh, attacks of him as being anti-Semite. Of course, none of that is true. Uh, but the two reviews, as I said, that I really like was one is um, uh, called uh, The Reorientations of Edward Said, and it appeared in The New Yorker, I think April 26th. If you might be able to read it online by Pankas Mishra, the, the Indian critic. And the second one is by um, uh, Adam uh, Satz in the London Review of Books. And Adam Satz's one, I think, is called uh, Palestinianisms. So just quickly on both, um, the, 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 you know, Twitter is, is not always a representative sample, but if you read Twitter, like one of, the, one of the really good ones that I saw was Chris Lee summarized, and I totally agree with him about uh, Pankas's review, saying that it's far and away the best review um, of Tim Brennan's bio of Edward Said. And he himself, he, he, he refers to this point of being perplexed by those who have been assigned to review the book and by extension, Said's life um, for the New York Times, but that uh, Pankas Mishra um, gets it. And there's a couple of really nice you know, parts in Pankas Mishra's review, the reference to the fact that Edward, for example, um, he only really became politically uh, or you know, sort of con uh, concerned with the Palestinians. We've always been there, uh, you know, the fact that he was Palestinian, but he had a weird, um, schizophrenic relationship with that part of his identity. Um, but it was after the Six-Day War that he became way more um, connected to the Palestinian struggle. And there's this line in there, for example, in the review about how he 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 barely um, engaged with the work of Ralph Allison or James Baldwin, people that he later would admire in while he, when he first got to Columbia in the early 60s. And in fact, and he had very little, very little contact with the civil rights movement, and when students protesting the war, this, the war in Vietnam disrupted a class of his, he actually called campus security. Um, and then I think the other part that I really like from the, the Pankas Mishra review is how he writes about um, Edward Said's uh, writing Orientalism um, and some of the some of the criticisms of criticism of Orientalism that came out of the region, particularly by Ijaz Ahmad, um, and how Edward Edward Said himself wasn't necessarily, you know, Orientalism is a big book, but he he didn't he didn't think that that was the only argument he wanted to make. But in the process, people began to see him only um, as this writer who writes about um, who write, who wrote about uh, you know the Orientalist Orientalist um, uh, image, if you want, in the West. Um, and then there's other little beautiful things uh, in there that, that, and I don't want to give away the whole review, but I can recommend that one. And then just quickly, Adam, Adam Satch's review um, in the in the New Yorker, uh, sorry, in the in the London Review of Books. Uh, some great. Um, uh, there was one tweet I was going to read, uh, but I can't find it now. Um, but Adam's is, I think, four times as long as as. Uh, as uh, Pankasus, and it includes some little gems like the fact that Edward Said's daughter uh, recommended Sinead O'Connor's uh, music to him, and he became a fan. I know that might surprise uh, some people. And then there's one other sweet one in there, which is something I've always wanted to write about, which is uh, Edward Said's relationship with popular culture, which is that, in fact, the only thing that Edward Said liked outside of playing classical music was that he liked playing and watching tennis. But that's for another day. In any case, well, what were you been reading? 
Well, I haven't really been reading much because, you know, like you, I, I actually don't enjoy reading. You know, I have to do a lot of it, but it's a lot of work. I think we we can just admit that, especially nowadays, it's it's always exhausting. Um, especially, I don't like reading Marx. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna take that up later. But you know, jokes aside, I mean, I just want to touch on something you raised just now, which is about how one of the issues closest to Said's heart and one of the things his advocacy was most pronounced in was his support for the cause of Palestinian liberation. And it is bizarre that he's often portrayed as being this anti-Semite, this narrow nationalist, when the truth is that Said was one of the earliest proponents of a universalist outcome in the in the in the struggle. I mean, he wrote that path-breaking essay in 1999 for the New York Times advocating for the one-state solution and advocating for an outcome that would reimagine the territories of Israel and Palestine from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea as being a place that could belong to both Jews, Christians, and Muslims. And it's interesting that at the same time, there's all of this renewed interest in Saeed's life, thanks to Timothy Brennan's new biography, we're also sort of reaching a kind of impasse in the situation, insofar as, you know, there's been this groundbreaking report released by Human Rights Watch, one of the leading human rights organizations in the world, which declares that Israel is in fact an apartheid state, something we in South Africa have known for a long time, given our own lived experience. And this also follows on from Israel's leading human rights organization as well, B'Tselem, also declaring earlier this year that Israel is an apartheid state. And as I said earlier, South Africans who've lived under a history of racialized segregation, of political oppression, and of near-ethnic cleansing know this very well. So I suppose the question remains of what is going to be the outcome of all of this? What is going to be the outcome of all of these declarations that uh, human rights tragedy continues to be ongoing in Israel and Palestine? I mean, the re recent reports are that there's families in, in East Jerusalem that are on the cusp of being evicted for their homes to make way for a kind of Zionist tourist attraction. So I suppose it's 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 one of those moments when you you start to miss a figure like Said because he had this this moral clarity on the issue, this political vision, which I think uh, imagined uh, questioning the nation state form of Israel, which is the basis of its political project. And ever since the passage of the nation state law, which spoke about how sovereignty is unique to Jews, it's definitely a, an opportunity for that nation state form of social organization to be challenged. But I guess the moment does feel a little bit immobile because uh, the political forces aren't around that are capable of championing such a vision. I mean, the Palestinian elections, which were set to happen this week, have been indefinitely postponed because uh, Abbas's Palestinian Liberation Organization have delayed them yet again. I mean, there's, there's disagreements with the Israeli government over certain terms, but you do get the sense that Palestine, the, the ruling class in Palestine, comprising Fatah and Hamas have just reached a point where they're obsolete, where they're completely unable to 
to provide a vision to Palestinians that can actually mobilize a mass movement of the kind that we saw here in South Africa. So yeah, just, just missing someone like Saeed who was able to speak with such clarity on the issue. And I also, I also thought one of the things that I liked that those reviews captured was his ability to, so he, he had a thing about never feeling at home um, and always feeling as an out, like an outsider, I think even in his own intellectual work. But I think the thing that, to, just to connect to what you're saying now, is his ability to adapt politically, to not sort of remain rigid, but to understand that, you know, the balance of forces politically and, and, and realizing, okay, that tactic doesn't work right now. Like when it was a diplomat, you know, when, when it was an armed struggle, when it was a diplomatic struggle, like uh, when it was time to, to seek reapproachment, um, but, you know, on, on a sort of equal terms, like he, he the, Said seemed to be very attuned to that to, throughout his life. And I think that's another one of those things. When you say like, there's something often we miss politically now, then you think back on those things, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and speaking of of figures and ideas that we miss politically now, to talk about one which does seem to be in decline, will don't have to sound as somber, Will. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> what was that? No, I said we don't have to. He was like speaking of figures. I was like, yo, we don't have to sound so somber about <laughs> Marx. We've declared him. We've declared him dead and gone. <laughs> Well, it's just somber in the sense that you're reflecting on 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 a political moment where that just feels sort of sort of stuck, um, and maybe it's because the kind of ideas that Marx presented and that Said presented uh, are now marginal. But you know, to talk to people who know better than I, than we do about whether or not that is the case, um, we're going to talk about whether or not the third world still needs Marx. And our first guest, we're really excited to have him on the show is Zayad Al-Nabolsi and Ani Olaloku-Tariba is also gonna join in a moment. So we'll introduce her when she's on the show. But to introduce Zayad, Zayad is a PhD student in Africana Studies at Cornell University, working on the African philosophy of culture, African Marxism, as well as the philosophy of science and a modern African intellectual history. So. Uh, Zayad, thank you so much for, for joining us today. We're really grateful that you were able to come on. So to maybe start with a very personal question, um, you know, when I think about the first time I encountered Karl Marx, uh, as it was with a lot of people, uh, it would have been in high school. And, you know, my parents are Tanzanian, so I heard a lot about Julius Nyerere, but he was always this sort of mythical figure, I understood that he was a socialist, didn't really understand what that meant. Um, and so at some, like, at, I think 14 years old, uh, had a library card for my, my closest library, took out a copy manifesto, and that was, you know, my first introduction to Marx. So, um, yeah, I wanted to, to know what was, how did you first encounter Karl Marx? Right. Uh, so I, I just want to say thank you so much for having me on the show. Um, yeah, this is a, a good question. I mean, okay, so 14 for you, okay, you beat me, definitely way older than 14 <laughs> for me, I'd say. Uh, maybe, yeah, 17 or something, 17, 18. Um, so I had an interest in reading history. Um, and, you know, eventually, obviously, 
even if you're re reading sort of anti-Marxist uh, history, they always hint at this, you know, they call it like the reductive economistic Marx Marxist view and move on or something, right? So um, I got curious, okay, you know, I, I want to see what is this reductive economistic view of history. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, because I guess I have this contrarian strain, so I said, okay. Uh, so, so the first thing I read, I think, was the Communist Manifesto, which is, you know, I think what uh, most people uh, uh, read. And I, uh, you know, uh, it was sort of um, uh, illuminating to to sort of have this understanding. Okay, we can have these structural explanations because I was reading a lot of stuff that had a kind of personalist approach to history or something, right? Great people, great people doing things, failing and doing things and so on. So, so that was sort of my introduction was through uh, history, I guess, interest in that sort of stuff. I was going to say my my first encounter with Marx is the, the manifesto, of course, because the, the 1980s in South Africa when I was in high school is, is, you know, it's highly politicized. There's like a mass struggle going on or you know, some people might characterize it as a revolution. Um, and, you know, people are just passing around this manifesto and you can read it. It's very simple, right? It's actually like a tract, like a, like a, mm -hmm. like a pamphlet. But I, I would say I really started reading it in university when at the University of Cape Town. And I would credit probably somebody like Mary Simons, who was the daughter of uh, Jack Simons, who was a very, and Ray Alexander, who was a trade unionist. Jack Simons was a, well, he wrote a book called uh, Class and Color, which is a classic from the from the sort of first half of the 20th century. And he was in exile at that time, and his daughter taught at the university. I think she, uh, right before that, she may have been in been detained. But anyway, and I really enjoyed uh, you know having classes with her, political theory classes, comparative politics classes, and that's where I where I started reading Marx. And I would say historical materialism, even if I'm sort of wavering now and then. Um, it remains sort of my way of trying to make sense of the world. Your point about personalized structures versus um, versus these, you know, this, this kind of understanding the world, superstructure, base, and so on. Like, you could start from that. You can, you know, history, history moving, and so on. In any case, how would you say, as a follow-up question, how is your idea, how have your ideas to Marx, uh, to Karl Marx's ideas changed or evolved, like, like over time? Right. So, so I, I guess I would say, and I think that happens to uh, a lot of people, I developed a kind of uh, 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 interest in sort of what we can say, the philosophical aspects of Karl Marx. Uh, and actually, I, I was sort of doing my undergraduate in engineering and finished that, but I developed an interest in philosophy. So I, I did, I ended up doing a master's in philosophy. And I ended up doing it on Hegel, because, you know, obviously, um, you need to have some sort of understanding of, of Hegel to grasp Marx. And people obviously debate the extent to which this is, you know, stringent requirement. I don't think you should force people to, to read Hegel before, you know, uh, uh, before they read Marx. Uh, but I would say that over time, I've sort of, uh, I would say I've come to uh, sort of see the limits of a certain philosophical approach to Marx uh, that overemphasizes um, maybe the normative aspects uh, in his in his thinking, which uh, and and those you know there is obviously lots of debates about the, ex the extent to which Marx developed a normative theory of any sorts about justice or equality or something like that. Um, and I think over time I've sort of developed an interest in the kind of more, uh, if you can say, 
the critique of political economy as a project. Uh, and I had to sort of try, okay, I'm going to try to teach myself some polit some classical political economy so I can understand its critique. So sort of that's sort of where I'm at now. And, um, and, and also as a function of time, you know, I've sort of uh, moved away a bit maybe from uh, attempts to answer the charge of racism and Eurocentrism directly through Marxology, because you see that a lot, right? People go, they excavate Marxism, you know, we can say minor writings uh, to see, okay, well, actually he said this about uh, this place and we can track, you know, a development in his understanding of uh, Indian society in the 19th century. Uh, and now I'm more interested in sort of the global reception of Marxism, a kind of global intellectual history. Um, so that's sort of where I'm at right now. That's, yeah, I mean, um, I'm also reading Hegel at the moment. Um, That's good. <laughs> it's, it's, it's too tough. It's, it's a lot. I mean, I'm interested in what you just said now about you making this transition away from, from sort of getting bogged down in these allegations that Marx was a racist and that case being pulled out of isolating the fragments in, in his work. Um, you know, what is the nature of that allegation? What do people sort of point to in alleging that Marx was a racist or in some instances an anti-Semite? And how would you sort of, you say you think that's kind of peripheral to the main thrust of his project, which is a critique of, of political economy, but how does it figure in to all of that? Right, so, so if you take, for example, um, debates about uh, the Asiatic mode of production, because that's one way, you know, that debate has sort of raged on for a, for a very uh, long time. And so, uh, obviously, uh, this concept has a lot of uh, European intellectual history of the 18th and 19th century behind it. And Marx is drawing on that for sure, you know, that there is no doubt. But, but essentially, you know, for example, pe people might point uh, to his description uh, uh, of of India and his uh, article of I'm trying to remember 1853 I think yeah where he talks about you know a kind of stagnant society where nothing really happens at least at the level of structural social transformation so you have like political revolutions this dynasty going in and you know conquering uh, uh, the subcontinent and another one coming along but you know he presents us with this image that you know maybe at, at the kind of at the level of what he describes as sort of like the village communes, nothing is happening. Uh, all, all, all what's happening is uh, uh, the people in power are changing, but the structure is, is the same. And, and people have said, well, this is sort of, you know, um, uh, Eurocentric and racist. And, you know, it's understandable why people would, would think that, uh, uh, because again, obviously, uh, you, you guys already talked about uh, Edward Said. So uh, one, one prominent element in Orientalist discourse was, uh, um the claim that in the east or in the orient nothing ever really happens changes you know uh, at a fundamental level um so it's understandable why people would try to uh, assimilate that to a kind of orientalist discourse um but i think in response to that you have people like kevin anderson for example who wrote this book uh, marx marx at the margins i think came out like 2000 10 or so i can't remember uh, but he tries to see okay he looks at how marx actually uh, Marx's views developed uh, on India after after uh, uh, the 1850s and so on. 
uh, where he develops a kind of more nuanced understanding. And I guess I would say, I think this approach is, is, is very useful, but I think there are limits to this approach because for me, it would be much more interesting to see, uh, you know, to look at the reception of Marx in India by Indian intellectuals, for example, in, um, in the 20th century and what sense of that because there is a way to make this course about eurocentrism itself eurocentric right where you just keep talking okay uh, uh we'll keep doing these excavations yeah i mean um annie's annie's just joined us i've got a question about awesome. about what you've just said now but I'd, I'd like to bring on bring on annie to the show uh welcome annie we're so happy to to have you on today um and if you don't know yet, Annie is an independent researcher based in London, working on the legacies of empire and the complex histories of race. And we're talking about Marx and race at the moment. But before we, we continue that conversation, Annie, we want to start with something a little bit personal. We were just reflecting on how all of us first encountered Marx in our lives. So we want to ask you too, how, when did you first encounter Marx? How did you come to, to know of this gray bearded guy always sitting there in series? <laughs> Yes, for portraits. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that's such a funny question to ask me because, um, in fact, this person is now my best friend, uh, and I met him about. Will be going on eleven years now, and the first day I ever met him, he was uh, my guide at his school. I was doing. Uh, competition and he was telling me you know oh you should read this like workers paper have you heard of Karl Marx um, and it's so funny because I I didn't tell him he was the first person who'd ever said Karl Marx's name to me until we had been friends for about 10 years <laughs> um, but yeah that was a really transformative period in my life um, I kind of grew up in a working class neighborhood, had these instinctive feelings about the world and something being wrong with the world, had like, I guess, what were some of the worst experiences of the excesses of capitalism that you could have um, in the imperial core. And then all of a sudden I had a language to describe that in. I had a reason to understand some of the experiences I'd gone through. And um, I had a methodology for thinking about how I might resist in a way that's effective. Um, and when I got to university, my reading of Marx obviously paired with my reading of Fanon, <laughs> and it became even more liberating, um, but happy to kind of ask more questions, questions along that line. It's really funny because um, I don't know if anyone knows him, his name is Barnaby Rain, <laughs> but yeah. I know Barnaby, yeah, good, good comrade. Um, and I mean, it's interesting what you've just said now that your, your reading with Marx in university overlap with your reading of Fanon, we're talking about Marx and race just now, and Bayard, before you joined, was talking about Marx's understanding of the Asiatic mode of production and how this was a methodology that he applied to understand, uh, you know, the development of, of capitalism or the non-development of capitalism in, in Asia and the East. So I suppose the question is, you know, when, you know, Zayad was saying that it would be more interesting to look at uh, how Marx is received by contemporary intellectuals. Um, Marx's critique of political economy, at some point, people say that it's it's insufficient insofar as it doesn't fully capture the sort of, uh, the superstructure that society, let's just say, right? It's too narrow, it's too focused on 
the economy and it ignores these other elements of society which are just as important to social life such as culture and ideology and and so on and you know in in, in both africa and and in india uh, uh, during the, the colonial period that was that was a significant critique leveled against against marxism so when it comes to understanding his reception there i mean what was what was the basis i mean i'm asking you guys to do, explain a lot but what was what was the basis of of that critique and you know doesn't warrant doesn't warrant a departure from marxism or is it compatible with with marxism i mean for non for example some people say he isn't a marxist some people say he is um you know, how do we tell um i'm happy to jump in um I think that uh, there are two ways of conceiving. I mean, obviously there are loads and there are loads of traditions of Marxism, but there are two ways broadly in the way that I conceive of it, of like understanding Marxism as a marker for a political project. One is to say that this guy called Marx came along and like wrote um, this magnum opus, which contains within it everything about our society and how, um, and everything about human history and how we might kind of resist the um, ethical and moral incursions of capitalism today. Uh, there's another way of conceiving of it, which I think is what a really great Marxist tradition, which I'm going to trace from Lenin to National Liberation, Black Panthers, um, are doing. And they're saying, you know, even Stokely Carmichael kind of falls under this traditional Kwame Ture. Um, they're saying, uh, you know, here's this guy called Karl Marx. He cannot have um, invented the notion of wanting to free ourselves and live collectively. <laughs> um, but what he offers us is a set of tools for thinking about the world um, and interrogating the conditions that we are faced with um, that are helpful, right? And so Fanon makes a comment, I believe it's in uh, Concerning Violence, where he talks about in the colonial situation, Marx must be stretched, right? Crucially, he doesn't say Marx must be rejected. And I think that sometimes people are looking for Marx's work to do everything, anything and everything. And I think both Marxists do that and anti-Marxists. Um, but it's more helpful to kind of think of him as having a very specific project, um, looking at the development of capitalism in, in Europe, um, Western Europe, um, making some generalized comments about the broader kind of geographical frame, um, but speaking to a moment in the late 19th century, um, Marx could not have conceived of the developments in imperialism that happened in the early 20th century. Marx could not have conceived of the rise of neoliberalism. And so when we're asking him to speak to that, to offer us a blueprint for getting out of that, um, rather than a methodology for understanding that, we're asking too much of him. Um, sorry, I didn't, <laughs> it does frustrate me a little bit. Isaiah, do you want to do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I totally agree with with Annie that you know when we're talking, you know, so, so to take sort of the questions, uh, the question of this uh, uh, discussion, uh, do Africans need Karl Marx? Uh, I think yeah, very much to Annie's point, we're asking is Karl Marx uh, someone who has provided adequate analytic tools that we start from, right? We're not asking should we only read Karl Marx or end with Karl Marx. Um, uh, and I think to that extent, we can definitely uh, uh, talk about uh, uh, the adequacy of, of the analytical tools that were provided. Um, so, so to go back, for example, to this question of uh, uh, Orientalism, racism, and, and, and Eurocentrism, 
uh, I, I think if we look at sort of what historical materialism is as, as a theory of, of uh, uh, social uh, transformations, we would see that even, yes, of course, we can point out to elements that are Orientalist uh, in Marx's writings and racist in Marx's writings. But what, what the historical materialist worldview does, I think, is uh, uh, undermine a lot of, uh, especially the, the racist civilizational discourse um, uh, at the conceptual level, which was prevalent in the 19th century, which continued to be prevalent into the 20th century, and until today, in fact. So just for those who are, who are just uh, tuning in, we are discussing um, Karl Marx. Uh, I, 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 in my brain, I'm also thinking this, this discussion about Karl Marx, if this was like 20 years ago, it would be very different because a lot, maybe this is to Annie's point, a lot has happened globally. Uh, different kinds of social movements have emerged that, that complicate, you know, that has complicated this discussion on Karl Marx. So, and the reason we're doing it, it's his birthday tomorrow, that he was born on uh, the 5th of May, um, 1818. So one of the comments that people are, so on the YouTube channel, there are people have been making lots of comments. And one of, so uh, this, the, the, maybe the next question regards Karl Marx and trying to understand uh, African politics or the African political, African political economy. Um, and people are there making comments that, you know, people like Walter Rodney, Claude Ake from Nigeria, Sula Marx from South Africa, Bill Freund, that Many of these people, you can see them as part of a Marxist tradition uh, coming out of Africa. My question is, why, why, well, let me, let me, let me say to you, well, the question we had is like, why is Marx and Marxism in decline in Africa? I mean, that, you know, well, first we'd have to like, I suppose, agree that it's in decline. I mean, I have the sense that it's in decline. And then I think the follow-up is then, why is that the case? Um, actually, sorry, we'll go first. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, I, I mean, that's a difficult question. Uh, I, I, I think, I think it would depend, you know, um, regionally where we're looking, of course, but, but I, I take your, uh, your general point. Uh, I, I mean, I think one interesting phenomenon since sort of maybe like the 1990s, uh, is to see sort of, um, the role that what we can call sort of the transformation of African politics into a kind of NGO, you know, uh, uh, dominated project. Because what has happened is that you've had uh, all those experienced organizers who were either in Marxist organizations or Marxist influenced organizations. Uh, and they've sort of been co-opted, I think, in this uh, in this NGO structure. I think, like for example, in in Egypt, that's definitely the case. Uh, maybe and maybe in South Africa, it's it's similar. Uh, uh, so so I think even sort of the kind of organizational experience that would uh, allow people to develop an organization that would intervene at a kind of opportune moments, because we've had opportune moments in in different countries. Um, uh, I I think that that sort of hasn't been there. Uh, and I think there is also, uh, and this is hinted at, I believe, you know, in, in, in the write-up for, for this episode, uh, the kind of transformation, again, of emancipatory politics into a kind of cultural discourse uh, taking place at, uh, in the realm of representation, which, not to say that this is not important, uh, but I think there are very clear limits to that. Um, yeah, but it's it's a good question, and I don't really, you know, pretend to have uh, a well-developed answer. Uh, 
Jump in. Um, <laughs> if, you, if, if you have the answer. <laughs> I would um, make the slightly bold claim that I think that mass Marxist organization is on the decline globally, right? Um, and uh, I remember Robin Kelly pointed out, like reminded us, like when the Russian Revolution happened, there were like waves of strikes, which included 70% of the population. That is a critical mass, right? Um, and so I think two things contribute to this. One is uh, an erasure and assault on a revolutionary imaginary as it was able to institutionalize itself in the kind of um, mid to late 1970s, the decline in neoliberalization and marketization of African universities, um, the reorientation of curriculums and like the like to get some of these texts that we're talking about in terms of like African political uh, political economists and Marxist African Marxist tradition like you're looking at 60 70 pounds for a copy because they're just out of print right um, and so in a very tangible sense um, the texts which are able to speak to the specific context of um, African countries are becoming more and more out of reach um, I think the second dynamic of that and I think Zayed's completely right about um, <laughs> the rise of a culturalist frame of understanding um, politics. I think that in different ways in the imperial core and in the global periphery in loads of parts of the world, what we've seen is a recession um, of the political um, and things are increasingly understood in cultural terms and essentialist terms. I am trying to interrogate in my work the relationship between that and the rise of um, uh, the, the, the relationship between the rise of like um, that form of essentialist culturalist politics um, embedded in not just representational politics, but also embedded in some of the strands of identity politics, which seem to be taking root. I'm going to risk myself getting cancelled on the internet and talk about, you know, the, the developments in the kind of fallist movements in South Africa, um, where you see like radical uh, political imaginaries be increasingly inhibited by essentialist understandings of race, um, of culture and of political struggle, essentially, right? And so um, I do think that uh, maybe the question is more so what is it about the conditions of this moment, which mean that the Marxist theory that we're drawing on doesn't have the degree of appeal that it historically has had. And what does that mean for how we reorient our tools of analysis and what we need to be speaking to? So, Sorry, it's interesting you say that. Um, I know Will has a question, but I read this earlier today um, in the introduction to On the Post-Colony by Ashil Mbembe, who's also very much associated with this kind of, you know, the, 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 this, well, I mean, maybe we should debate him another time. But he, the, your, your comment about the move to sort of the, the cultural, political cultural explanations, political identity, he actually writes in, 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 in the introduction of the book that, quote, helped by the collapse of Marxism as an analytical tool, all embracing project, and by the demise of theories of dependency, economic explanations of contemporary social and political phenomena have, with consideration of the draconian character of external constraints, all but disappeared. All struggles have become struggles of representation. Levies, exploitation, corvy, taxes, tribute, and coercion no longer exist. Everything has become network, and no one asks anymore about the market and capitalism as institutions both contingent and violent. 
I thought it was interesting that even Asinem Bembe in the introduction to his book, which is very much kind of associated with a sort of critique of Marxism view on school, acknowledges that in the introduction. Yeah, and, and, and I think this relates to the question I want to ask, which is, you know, Annie, you were saying that you're trying to think through these essentialist understandings of social categories that are starting to become embedded in identity politics and in sort of progressive politics. And, you know, I'm, you know, I'm starting to notice it sometimes occasionally on, on the radical left as well. So, um, you know, I, I might get canceled for saying this, but sometimes I often get a little bit uncomfortable, you know, reading Cedric Robinson's work. And we, we did an, a show about him very recently, which was ex extremely illuminating, but I suppose what I struggle to grapple with is how Robinson, you know, presents the black radical tradition in opposition to Marxism and, you know, presents the black radical tradition almost as an alternative to Marxist politics um, and refers to a group of intellectuals that I would ordinarily associate with, with Marxism. So I suppose the question I want to ask is, what do you think produces this kind of um, what interest in trying to to present a, a radical politics, but one that is is detached from from Marx? So I guess really it's just a question of of Cedric Robinson and how you receive him um, in relation to the conversation that we've been having. But how do we make sense of, of this sort of development? Yeah, I'm one of the people that I want to kind of focus on eventually in my project. Um, so I'm going to reserve some comments, <laughs> some of the comments. I would say that um, I am increasingly thinking of 1983 as a transition year. That's the year that Black Marxism came out. Um, and uh, it's also incidentally the year that the Center for Contemporary Cultural Studies released a book called Empire Strikes Back. And these are strikingly oppositional accounts of what trends are developing and also how we ought to conceive of our political communities. And I read Robinson and ask two questions. Firstly, in terms of the stakes of proving a racialism that exists um, in Europe prior to uh, capitalism and prior to colonization. Um, if, for instance, that requires us hollowing out the concept of racialism to such an extent that it's just as easily applicable to the cultural differences that exist on the continent prior to colonization. In that sense, racialism isn't a unique export of Europe to the rest of the world. Um, the second problem I have is a reading of, and this is oftentimes things that people ascribe to Robinson after the text. I mean, a lot of people kind of go to black Marxism thinking it's going to be some kind of um, Bible of Black Marxism, <laughs> but um, so many of the people who are ascribed as part of the Black radical tradition in opposition to Marxism uh, derive their radical politics and develop their radical politics through dialogue with an organization with radical movements which aren't categorized as Black within this framework, right? And so what does it mean to extricate um, this particular dynamic um, of racialization as black as being the sole determining factor. Now, I don't think Robinson is making the argument as crudely as that, but I would kind of um, 
suggest that if we're to kind of, uh, um, I don't know, I think for me, the more help, helpful framing is theorizing black as a subject position. Um, and that subject position doesn't have to map onto a material reality. I think most of the problems we have come from um, theorizing this position of the black in the abstract and then trying to map that really neatly onto when we know that it's sort of produced by all of these different processes, um, map that then onto the category of the sub-Saharan African or the person of sub-Saharan African descent. And that's really messy. Um, sorry, I hope I, I hope that made sense. I kind of went around a bit in, in rambling. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, if I can say yeah, so, something also on, on like Marxism. Um, I, I mean, I think it's um, it maybe it has something to do more with the reception of the text than maybe Robinson's in, intention, but maybe it's sort of you know lended itself to that reading. But I think one criticism that we can make also of, of Robinson is that you know when you read the text, you you know one thing I found surprising is the extent to which the concept of West civilization plays an important analytic role, right? Because part of the argument is that Marxism emerged from this civilization. And and he doesn't really, you know, define for us what Western civilization means. But I would say that precisely where a kind of historical materialist analysis would fit in is to sort of question uh, the analytic adequacy of a concept like Western civilization or uh, Western culture or something like that. Uh, because it always forces you obviously you do have you know the kind of relative autonomy of uh, cultural spheres and all of that but you still have to tie to specific modes of production and that allows you to also like note this continuities uh because you know this idea of western civilization it's also like a kind of very 19th century development it's it's a created image uh positing this continuity i mean somebody like aristotle uh wouldn't wouldn't think of him as as Western, you know, if he was uh, alive, but yet he gets assimilated into that discourse, of course. Yeah, that's that's such an interesting um, thread to continue on from from both of you. Uh, when we think of how you know Western civilization can end up being reified as a continuous category that is is fixed and doesn't change as social reality changes, how do we sort of position the relationship between Marxism and sort of the rise of, you know, post-colonial studies? We were talking about Said earlier, and Said is often attributed as being the founder of this, and he himself denied that. So this um, mode of critique that sort of, whose object is, 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 practically Western civilization and how the world is constructed in its image. So, I mean, there's this always uneasy relationship between, between the two bodies of thought. Um, and can the differences between the two of them be, be reconciled or, or are they irreconcilable? I, I think these debates, you know, especially nowadays, feel like they're, they're, they're reaching a fever pitch. You can go back. Trying to get both of you cancelled after this by asking you. Yeah, we're sorry. We're sorry. No, it's I don't want to say anything. I don't want to say anything, Glib. Um, um, 
I would say I remember watching years and years ago, and I can't remember who it is, but it was a post-colonial theorist, um, and they were speaking in the introduction to um, speaking in the introduction to a talk about this uh, this letter that Engels wrote to the editor of a newspaper um, on the uh, relative kind of the question of the role of politics versus the role of like the economic question. Um, and it was really interesting because what that opened up for me is like a rethinking. I think part of what the academy does today is like reify the strict opposition between categories of thinking, right? And if we step back and say, okay, well, like what are the tools that are being offered by this frame of thinking? What are the tools that are being offered by Marxism? What are the tools that are being offered by um, post-colonial theory? Sometimes they are in opposition. Um, what we can then see is the really interesting ways in which people are engaging with each other. Um, so yeah, I, I hope that makes sense. But I, all of that is to say that I have my own feelings about how like the notion of the post-colonial um, reorients our thinking to believing that we live in a post-colonial world, which we obviously don't. Um, we yeah face active settler colonial projects, not least in Palestine, but also just kind of thinking about what role that played. And actually, I can't remember the text, but it's a David Scott text, um, which um, talks about how the moment of the post-colonial is also the moment of the notion of a global revolution being receded into the notion of the nation and the nation building project suddenly taking primacy over the project of global transformation. And I think that that really speaks well to how a lot of movements on the African continent in the mid to late 20th century get read today as nationalist movements which sought to build particular types of state and then the primary question becomes how that state is able to leverage power vis-a-vis -vis the West rather than the question of um, how the people who are engaged in that project on a mass scale were seeking to bring about a world in which, well, the state, the nation state form itself became irrelevant um, and the community or the, like, the associations of people became more important. Um, yeah. Dia, do you want to say something to that? Yeah, yeah I, I mean, just uh, in relation to uh, uh, the question of sort of uh, um, post-colonial discourse i i think i think it's 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 sort of uh um uh dangerous i guess to paint it all with one brush or something but i think one element i would say that we can criticize it for and i think it would be legitimate is that often it uh it takes for granted what what the eurocentric story is right so for example when you see texts texts criticizing marxism it's often assumed, you know, and they use Marxism without adjectives, so it's not like geographically located or anything, but they're essentially, you know, criticizing, uh, for example, the Frankfurt School. Uh, and there is no attention, again, to sort of the global intellectual history of Marxism, uh, which sort of, again, reproduces this, uh, this narrative that Marxism is sort of like a Western project, even though, you know, the history of Marxism in the second half of the 20th century is very much the history of you know what they call today the global south or what they called back then the third world just like you know you couldn't possibly write a history of marxism in the 20th century without taking that into account to just not which is a good which is a good time i think to ask you about because before we got on the program we we were just chatting and one of the things you mentioned is that your research your research includes 
work of this kind of theorizing that happened on the African continent. I sort of mentioned this in passing earlier, and, and a lot of it was taking place in Tanzania, right, in Dar es Salaam. Do you want to just say, given, given what you just said about the history of Marxism in the 20th century is, is kind of in the, in the global south, can you just say a little bit about that? Right, right. So, uh, so one of the things I, I, I look at is uh, the debate between uh, proponents of African socialism uh, in Tanzania uh, under Nyerere and uh, African Marxists who sort of took an oppositional stance. Uh, I mean, it was a complex stance, not, not wholly oppositional to, uh, uh, to, uh, to African socialism. Uh, but for example, you know, in some of Nyerere's speeches, uh, and Nyerere's thought is quite complex and develops over time. But you know, in some of his speeches, he would speak of uh, a traditional African society which was classless. Therefore, a theory that emphasizes class struggle as sort of like the the, the vehicle for historical transformation is, you know, not relevant to that society. Uh, and you've had you had people like uh, Dan Nabuderi, who was uh, from Uganda, Ugandan lawyer, political economist. Um, uh, and also like later on sort of more of a cultural theorist later in his life. Uh, and you have people like uh, Abdurrahman Muhammad Babu uh, from uh, uh, Zanzibar, who took sort of a critical stance towards this. Um, and they tried to show, well, actually, uh, this is sort of um, not really historically true. You had, you know, you had basically uh, things that we can refer to as sort of tributary relation, uh, tributary uh, uh, societies and, and some of those social formations that they were discussing. But more importantly, because where I th this is where I think this sort of debate is relevant today, they ended up trying to understand, okay, how does this discourse of African socialism emerge? It emerges in Tanzania, it emerges in, uh, uh, in Senegal, as well. Uh, it also emerges, uh, something similar emerges in North Africa, which was more like Arab socialism and in Egypt, for example. Uh, and they try to analyze it as a kind of what they call a petty bourgeois discourse uh, that seeks to sort of obfuscate uh, internal class struggles uh, and subsumes them uh, in the name of a kind of national struggle. Um, and obviously the, the, the relationship between sort of internal class struggles and the periphery, if you want to call it, or, or the new colonies as uh, they were called in, in those debates, uh, uh, and uh, a kind of national liberation pro project is complex. Uh, and I think, think similar debates would be fruitful today. This is why I think this stuff is, is relevant, and this is why I uh, bring it up. Uh, yeah, so I, I don't want to speak too long, so I'll, I'll stop here and see if you have any follow-up questions. I suppose my follow-up is, you know, what is it, what is it meant for Marxism generally to have lost those thinkers? I mean, so there's a generation of thinkers which are operating around the mid 20th century period. They're in Dar es Salaam and they're debating. And then there's another generation that follows on from that that includes, you know, figures like Samir Amin, who also wrote on tributary modes of production, world systems theory, and so on. And that generation is slowly starting to, to disappear. Unfortunately, most of them are aging and, and they're passing away. And it seems like we've reached a kind of a vacuum in an intellectual vacuum that is sort of unable to to kind of um, to give us the tools that we need to continue thinking critically about the historical moment. So what do you think the loss of these African Marxists, as as our viewers in the comments have have wonderfully been reminding us, existed in abundance? Um, 
what is it meant to to have lost them uh not only you know tragically when they pass away but a lot of them also kind of as happened in south africa migrating into to government uh overseeing uh a neoliberal program in in after independence uh what does that meant for marxism Uh, yes. Yeah, so, so I mean, it's it's definitely. I I think the biggest problem is we haven't had, uh, like you said, maybe the chains of uh, chains of transmission have been broken, and I think this is one of the biggest issues. Uh, and I think this is why it's very important to sort of uh, bring attention to these texts the way sort of you know uh, uh, we're uh, we're doing today. Uh, and you know maybe there is a possibility we can you know like post a bibliography or something, I think that that would be. Uh, because also the texts are mostly out of print, very difficult to find. So if you find them, it's sort of by chance, really. Um, uh, but I think, you know, one important thing is for us to at least go back and study these things. And we're not saying, okay, uh, uh, people must be Marxists and, and sort of like dive into these debates, but at least know what you're rejecting if you're saying okay well marxism is this eurocentric thing at least sort of like look at the history of marxism in these places and these debates so at least you have you know some kind of understanding of the thing you're rebelling against um uh, and and yeah and, and i think that that's that's i think what we should at least try to do um uh, and and not just be, because it's often you know it's very interesting that a lot of the characterizations of Marx as Eurocentric, they also come from universities in the West, which is interesting. I mean th that like from the standpoint standpoint of the sociology of knowledge is an interesting phenomenon. But you know we can go into that later, I guess. <laughs> um, that's absolutely true. <laughs> um, I was going to add just one more thing, and I um. It was really interesting when you were kind of talking about um, Marx's position of not simply kind of refuting the notion of this classless society that exists prior to colonization, this like weird thing that we have to in some way resurrect is a strangely conservative logic, um, but also asking the question of why this is coming to prominence at this particular juncture. Um, and so I am of the opinion <coughs> in a very bold claim I'm about to make, that we have to kind of turn it away from the external forces um, which are affecting us and uh, the kind of broader structure, but also the people who are attacking the left and Marxists. There's a sustained attack on the tradition of black Marxism. Um, but to think more inwardly or be more reflective, I would say that we, have not done such a great job at narrating our defeat um, and having that story of what precisely has changed. Um, if as Marxists we say that like the social world produces the way that we conceive of the social world um, and then in turn we kind of act on that world to make history, um, then that big first question is really important for us to answer. And I think that all too often our stories become about these heroes who we tragically lost. Um, we seek out individuals who, like, if only we went back and fought a bit harder using this program, um, if only we, like, didn't lose this person at this moment, as opposed to the kind of collective mass political histories that are required um, to be able to understand, well, why? 
why was it in the 1970s that like Marxism was the winning position? You know, why did it feel like people on the eve of revolution? Um, and why did that change? I don't think the assassination of one black Marxist can change the hearts and minds of millions of people across the global south, right? And so something deeper has to be happening. I think that's the thing we have to contend with. I was muted there because I, I wanted to ask like a sort of, which, is, which I think is in a way sort of the final question, but it's in a way also kind of a follow-up. There is an element in the room, right, which is the role of popular culture and what people describe as kind of the domination or or in 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 political debates about the African world, if there is such a thing, the America, the, the United States and the debates within the US become really decisive in determining how people talk about politics. And I would even suggest like how well social movements develop organically, but there's a way in which these social movements I think are often in in conversation with and gets uh, influenced heavily by the terminology, by the by thinking about what is politically possible, or by in, even in terms of like the like you know what are we building on? I think a lot of it draws on on the influence of the American world. So, uh, can you? Can you say a little bit about that? Because I think we speak in here a lot about what's happening in the university, but we 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 recognize, of course, that and I think Annie was mentioning fees must fall, right? Or and SARS or Tahrir Square or what happened in Tunisia. Like there are real political movements that are happening um, on the continent, or and as and as I'm trying to suggest, Black Lives Matter is is if you look in the last summer. It is probably the most decisive political movement globally. If you think of people of African descent, or if you want the African world, like how does how do you get? Yeah, how 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 can you get at that? Like, how would you respond to that kind of problematic? I think that um, there was. It's not new to kind of think of the struggles that are happening in the imperial cause, specifically of African-Americans as um, a vanguard struggle. That's not new. Um, I think what is new is the requirement that the movements that are happening across the global periphery are legible within the frameworks offered by North America. Well, that's my little one getting him. Um, and so I think there's a way we do this false internationalism of assuming if we talk about Black Lives Matter, if we talk about what's happening in the Imperial core, then we are being internationalists. But, you know, the level of political education that we were looking at in the 60s and 70s wasn't simply about um, knowing our own context. You know, Black Panthers could tell you about the struggles that were happening in Congo, could tell you about the struggle of the Mozambican people, could tell you about the struggle of the Angolan people, right? Um, today, we don't have that. Today, we only get glimpses through social media of what resistance there is left on the continent, right? And that um, that's awful. <laughs> I don't know how we confront that, because that's such a, a, a huge challenge, right? And, uh, and so, I, yeah, I don't want to speak for too long, but I definitely think that um, part of the frame is 
one we haven't fully accounted for, you know, if we're talking about into like a world system which is structured in a particular way and the political economy of the US Academy has to have a role to play in terms of like our ability to understand why these frames get exported to the continent. The political economy of like black culture in which which centers and focuses on the um, black American context has to be taken into account. And none of these things are a moral critique. Um, you know, none of these things are by the design of African-American scholars or African-American um, activists or organizers. Um, these are broader social forces which are being brought to, like, brought to bear on what is intelligible to us and what isn't. Um, yeah, I'll leave it there. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely uh, uh, in agreement uh, with Annie here. Um, I, I, I think the, yeah, the, the, the sort of uh, uh, influence, uh, especially the way certain things become, you know, a kind of aesthetic motif, and it gets, you know, transferred that way. Uh, I think that can be a problem, but I think it's not really a, a massive problem if we actually have organizations on the ground. It becomes a massive problem when. You know, all that exists is Twitter discourse. Then it's a problem. Then you have to really, you know, worry. And, and you sort of inflate something that shouldn't really become a, a problem. And you have this sort of uh, reaction against it. Uh, but I think we, we can't really forget the importance of building on the ground organizations. Because again, to go back to the points we're making about, you know, transmission of skills, transmission of memory, this is where this stuff happens. Uh, and, and I think, you know, people think of this as sort of like an old fashioned party approach, uh, but it's really, it's, it's really, I, I still think it's very much relevant as a repository of, uh, of sort of social knowledge uh, and, and historical understanding. I think we really need these, these forms. Um, yeah, so, so I'll just stop there. I don't think I have more to add on that. I think, yeah, thank you to, to both of you. That was, you know, that was brilliant. Um, I think this is a good time to conclude the show. You know, my for, for my part, it just seems like, you know, this work that we're describing for ourselves that still needs to come of, of understanding exactly the nature of the social forces we're reckoning with, how our social world is produced and how that in turn produces us. It just always feels like, you know, at some point we need to have the serious debate about whether or not the left needs to log off because truly... You know, you know, social media just feels like such a toxic and distracting thing. And of course, now I'm 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 individualizing the problem and expecting that there's going to be this mass exit that one can coordinate. But I do think that you know this return to the ground, the return to the roots, the ignoring of all of the noise is. If it doesn't happen on Twitter, then it didn't. It didn't happen. <laughs> it didn't happen exactly. And we need to we need to know that we need to know. I mean, that's that seems to be the you know the 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 framework we we operate under but i mean this is just to say i think you're all absolutely right in the sense that we just need to yeah ignore the noise and and get on with the work we know that we need to do so to get on with that work let's end the show and, and get right to it um more importantly to say thank you to to both of you annie and and zayad and thank you to to sean my co-host, as well as our producer, Antoinette Engel, who, who's in Cape Town. Um, I think this is going to be an ongoing conversation. Uh, there's been a lot of conversation between us in the chat. So yeah, keep keep a, keep a lookout for, for what comes from this, especially on the issues of, of knowledge and archives and all of these resources that we, we would like to access. So 
on that note, thank you to our viewers as always, and we'll see you next week. Goodbye. And I think we should make